Hi guys, welcome to our podcast, Barrett's Chronicles, where we go over the topic that Professor Barrett Taylor taught us for pulmonology. This is our first and last episode where we'll be covering the topic of sarcoidosis. When we first learned about sarcoidosis, it was kind of hard to wrap around our heads around, but do not worry, we will take your hand and it's going to be okay. I'm your host, Julie, and I'm with my co-hosts, Miriam, Claiborne, Jess, Eric, and Jaw. And before we begin, we want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors today. Our first sponsor today is Be Well, who we want to thank for continually helping us to be well. Uh, a quick joke from them for the day. Uh, have you guys heard about the patient who lost their left lung? No. no. Sorry, he's all right now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Eric. All right. So now um, we're going to start with Miriam. Awesome. Hey, guys. So um, before we begin, I will go over the definition of sarcoidosis. Um, so sarcoidosis is a multi-system granulomatous disorder of unknown etiology that's characterized pathologically by the presence of non-caseating granulomas in involved organs. So some of the epidemiology of it, um, it's shown as to be increased in individuals with a family history of the disease. Um, so the genetic susceptibility is most closely linked to the major histocompatibility complex or MHC. It's also been associated with the presence of the HLA-DRB1 gene that's been seen in Lofgren syndrome. There's an increased incidence in African-Americans. Um, it's 2.4% compared to 0.85% in Caucasians. Females are twice as likely to be diagnosed than males, and it's more common in the young population. Average age of diagnosis is around 40 years old. The risk factors that are associated with the disease have been shown to be environmental and occupational exposure. Um, so with the occupational exposures, beryllium, zirconium and aluminum are associated with development of granulomas and that are similar to um, sarcoid granulomas. There was a case series that was actually done that showed exposure to World Trade Center dust during the collapse, recovery, and rescue were, were associated with increased incidence of sarcoid-like granulomatous pulmonary disease five years following that disaster. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, there's also infectious agents that um, are risk factors for sarcoidosis. Uh, so numerous organisms have been shown to be possible etiologic agents of sarcoidosis, but most notably are mycobacterium tuberculosis and cutie bacteria, which was previously known as propion bacterium acnes. There was also an increased serum amyloid A protein levels that were noted in um, serum from patients with sarcoidosis. Um, the increased amyloid A proteins actually show a correlation with the degree of the severity of the disease. Um, so that's it for the risk factors. Uh, Claiborne's going to go over the pathophysiology, so buckle in because it's going to be a lot. Okay, so I'm going to go over the pathophysiology of sarcoidosis. So how do we get these non-caseated uh, granulomas? How are they formed? Good question. It is a great question. So first, the antigens from the infectious agents that Miriam just went over, um, it might lead to an exposure to macrophages or dendritic cells. And these macrophage or dendritic cells will engulf and engulf the potential antigen and undergo phagocytosis. In the nucleus of the macrophage or dendritic cells, the chromosome number six will release specific proteins and combine with the antigen that underwent phagocytosis. And this forms the major histocompatibility complex with the potential agent, uh, potential antigen. So this MHC2 and the antigen together when they're combined is called the antigen-presenting cell. For short, we'll call it APC. 
So the APC will travel and go into the lymph node anywhere in the body and react with naive T cells. And the T cell receptor will bind to the antigen and produce CD4 proteins that come out of the TD um, T cell. The CD4 protein will interact with the MHC2 and the APC will activate. Once the APC is activated, it will release cytokines like IL-2, the IL, or I'm sorry, IL-1. The IL-1 will bind to the naive T cell and create activity in the DNA and turn certain genes on and off, causing the T cell to release IL-2. The IL-2 comes back and binds to the naive T cell itself and trigger proliferation, making Th1 lymphocytes and bind to the initial antigen. The Th1 lymphocytes with the antigen will leave the lymph nodes and go to different tissues in the body and start releasing more cytokines called interferon gamma. The interferon gamma will activate microphages and start to release more cytokines such as more interferon gamma or tumor necrotic factor alpha or macrophage one protein. Lastly, these, all these cytokines that have been released from that macrophage will cause other macrophages, T lymphocytes, fibroblasts into this air, into an area. The cytokines will additionally differentiate um, differentiate in the macrophage and form epithelioid cells that look like epithelial tissue. So all these different cells, these T lymphocytes, fibroblasts, macrophages, and epithelioid will form the non-granulated, I mean, non-caseated granuloma. The macrophages will all coalesce and the membrane will start breaking down and the cytoplasm of the macrophages fuse, fuse together. And this will form the big multinucleate giant cell. And in this cell contains two important structures that you can see on pathology called the shaman body and the asteroid body that looks like a star. The epithelioid cells will aggregate and form the second layer around the multinucleate giant cell. T lymphocytes will then aggregate around the epithelioid layer and the fibroblasts will aggregate around the T lymphocyte layer. So all these layers together with the uh, central layer of the multinucleate giant cell will form your non-caseated cells and that will deposit into multiple different organ systems. Wow, you guys are right. That is a long story. <laughs> so Claiborne and Miriam just walked us through what sarcoidosis does inside the body. But you might be wondering what it looks like on the outside of the body. So for our clinical presentation, 50% of the time sarcoidosis is an incidental finding on routine chest x-rays in asymptomatic patients. Typically, sarcoidosis presents in ages 20 years old to 60 years old in African-American females. Now, sarcoidosis can affect anywhere in the body, but it most commonly involves the lungs about 90% of the time. And only 30% of patients will have extra thoracic symptoms, with the most common organ being the skin. So for signs and symptoms that patients usually experience, nonspecific symptoms include fever, weight loss, and fatigue, but that's definitely not enough to diagnose it. Our lung, our lung symptoms are shortness of breath and cough, but of course that could be anything with the lungs. Now, our skin symptoms specific to sarcoidosis include red, hard, and painful skin nodules, usually in the lower legs, lesions that can be anywhere on the body, and symptoms that go with lupus perneo, including plaques and lesions over the nose, the cheeks, and the eyes. And we have a little bit of a curveball that can help you identify sarcoidosis, including eye symptoms, which are vision changes and inflammation of the eye, which is called uveitis. Now I'll pass it over to Eric to tell us about the physical exam findings. All right. Thank you, Jess. 
Uh, so for some of the physical exam findings, your exam is really going to depend on what specific system or uh, part of the body is being affected by sarcoidosis. Uh, some main staple ones that you're always going to want to include in your exam is going to be a cardiology exam, a pulmonary exam, and then a general exam as well. And then some other areas that you can go into or may possibly be affected could be an ENT exam, an eye exam, or a skin exam that may be included as well. Um, for our dermatological exam, I know that Jess went into some detail about that. Uh, some in, uh, involvements or showings of what might be affecting is the lupus perneo, which is uh, erythematous indurated lesions that are, are accompanied with malicious rashes that uh, come about on the cheeks or the nose, so it's a nasal involvement. Another skin involvement is an erythema nodosum, which is uh, panculitis and painful erythematous nodules that typically on their lower extremities. And then lastly, our subcutaneous nodular lesions. Uh, do you guys remember like when you were kids playing with like something like BBs or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so those are what would form most commonly on the forearm. It does feel like a lesion that is similar to a BB that's under the skin and it may hurt and become purplish uh, in color. Moving on in our exam, uh, as we had mentioned, it most commonly affects the lungs, uh, but it also can include other Involvements. I've just gone over skin. We could also go into cardiac, spleen, and muscle as well, as well as uh, liver, eye, and uh, lymph nodes. For the ocular involvement, I know that Jess said that it could show with some inflammation or the uveitis, which can be seen with, um, which is the most common eye involvement of a PE finding, which is the anterior or posterior granulomatous uveitis. It can also be seen with conjunctival lesions and sclera plaques, and they could also have optic disc granulomas. As an upper respiratory tract presentation, uh, it could show inflammation or swelling of the larynx, pharynx, snares, and sinuses. The pharynx and the larynx will be shown significantly swelling, especially if a bronchi bronchoscopy was to be uh, performed. For the cardiac exam, it's possible that somebody being affected by sarcoidosis, sarcoidosis may show findings of heart failure, valvular involvement, so they may have murmurs, and pericardial diseases, or they could have heart blocks as well. So uh, moving on from this, like, New patients that are being newly diagnosed with sarcoidosis will need an echo, an EKG to roll out those heart blocks and arrhythmias, and they may also be put on a halter monitor as well. For a neuro exam, it can cause cranial nerve, cranial nerve palsies and presentation of symptoms in patients that have uh, similar symptoms to encephalopathy, so you want to be ensured that you do a full neuro exam. Uh, beyond a thorough physical exam and history as well, you want to be sure that you can do other tests in labs such as a TB skin test, the Kyvum testing, and also imaging as chest x-rays, CTs, you can do pulmonary function testing, and tissue biopsies or bronchoscopies, which Julie, is gonna, Julie and Ja are going to go into more detail about. Thank you, Eric. Um, so I'm just going to go over the diagnostics um, a little bit more in detail, but you did a good job at summarizing in addition to um, chest x-ray, CT, and your pulmonary function tests and, and bronchoscopy. Another, another important thing to ask is a thorough history. So your family history is the most important one. And then um, if you're African-American and especially if you're exposed to a potential antigen such as your mycobacterium tuberculosis. Now you can also get a biopsy cutaneous lesion 
and uh, the thing is is that you can't biopsy the erythema nodulosum so the ones where it looks purplish on your legs so those are not useful because they won't show you the granulomas the next thing is you do is you get your labs so you can get your bmp and your cmp you're going to see an increase in vitamin d so that's because your active vitamin form the vitamin d3 is going to increase your calcium absorption and this is going to increase your hypercalcemia. Those calciums can also deposit in your renal tubules, leading to kidney stone disease. You're gonna see an increase in IgG because your lymphocytes producing a lot of antibodies. And then you're gonna see an increase in um, your ACE enzyme by the epithelial cells. Usually you can see this, it has to be very high in order to suspect sarcoidosis. But if it's low, you cannot rule out sarcoidosis. So another thing you can do is you do a tuberculosis skin test because those are your risk factors for of sarcoidosis. You can do an EKG to rule arrhythmias, um, ophthalmic exam, and then the lastly is your um, Kavim test, which is similar to your PPD test. Um, this is where part of your the spleen from a patient with a known sarcoidosis is injected into the skin of a patient who suspected of the disease. And if the non-casing granulomas are found four to six weeks later, the test is positive. And now I'm gonna pass it over to Julie to talk about treatment. Yeah, so before I go into treatment, I'm gonna tell you about the prognosis real quick. So it's usually very good. Majority um, that don't get treated will go into Lodron syndrome, which is an acute presentation of sarcoidosis. Um, that can include fever, erythema nodosum, and bilateral adenopathy. Um, but very rarely um, is it irreversible and fibrotic. So the goal of the treatment is to manage inflammation, relieve symptoms, and prevent organ damage, but who gets the treatment? Well, first you need the pathological confirmation, such as significant respiratory symptoms, declining PFTs, three to six months, uh, radiographic changes progressively, hypercalcemia, and multi-system involvement like the eyes, nervous system, heart, and kidneys. Um, but most people with sarcoidosis with minimal symptoms, they don't usually need treatment. It usually resolves on its own within like six months. So it's mainly just observing and letting their immune system take care of it. Mild to moderate symptoms, we're gonna give them a corticosteroid um, PO like prednisone, which will help control the inflammation and reduce symptoms. And, um, and it's often used as first line for both acute and severe cases. And don't forget to slowly taper off. And the treatment for this could range from three to six months, but could last up to 12 months. So if corticosteroids fail, there are additional therapies. You can use DMARDs um, when corticosteroids alone is not working. Um, you add in a corticosteroid with your DMARD and DMARDs help prevent inflammation and modify the immune system. Um, you have to slowly taper it off too because you can have like a rebound effect um, like shortness of breath and flushing. Also with DMARDs, it can cause pneumonitis itself. So make sure you're following with CT scans. You can also do a tumor necrosis factor alpha antagonist. Uh, this is more used for systemic involvement like the eye or central nervous system. And an alternative to low-dose prednisone for those who are just wheezing and have no PFT changes or for stage one to two patients, you can use an inhaled corticosteroid as a maintenance therapy for that cough and dyspnea. So chronically, as we know, sarcoidosis could lead to an interstitial lung disease and all that fibrotic tissue developing will decrease your normal parenchyma, which leads to a lung function decline, and this could lead to respiratory distress or lung failure. So how do you treat that? 
lung transplant. And now I'm gonna pass the baton to Miriam and she's gonna tell us a little bit about the patient education. Yeah, so now that we've gone over all that, how do we educate our patients about sarcoidosis? So if you know that you have a genetic risk factor and any immediate family members with sarcoidosis, you wanna make sure that you follow up with your primary care provider. Um, getting a Tdap every 10 years and also screening for tuberculosis skin tests yearly can also help. Um, and then if the patient has any of the following signs and symptoms, such as uh, shortness of breath, wheezing, or notice decreased activity, um, and any other abnormalities, the patient should be prompted to go to the ER and follow up with their primary care provider. So, in summary, if you happen to be a PA student with the final exam in clinical medicine coming up on a Tuesday morning, here are some pearls for sarcoidosis. For our epidemiology, think of mycobacterium tuberculosis, pathophysiology as greatly uh, explained by Claiborne, non-caseating granulomas, our clinical manifestations affects 20 to 60 year olds, commonly African-American women. For our signs and symptoms, it's commonly asymptomatic, but you can get lung and skin symptoms such as cough, shortness of breath, lesions, nodulosums, and a surprise curveball of uveitis in the eyes. For testing, think of hyalur adenopathy on chest x-ray, as well as ground glass opacities. A Kavim test, which will show non-caseating granulomas and an increase in vitamin D on labs. For our treatment, most patients don't need treatment as the prognosis is very good, but if it's needed, then prednisone. Oh, and for our last sponsor. Oh, uh, yeah, so our last sponsor uh, who is participating or sponsoring us in this podcast today is uh, Whole Foods. Not only is it your whole paycheck, it's your whole bank account. And uh, the we, a jo- <laughs> we have a joke from them as well. So uh, what do you guys call a basketball player that gets a lung infection? What? LeBronchiitis. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for our um, sponsors and my co-hosts. And don't forget to um, comment, like, and subscribe. And we read all your comments. So thanks for all the support. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Bye. Peace and sarcoidosis. Deuces. Sarcoidosis. (laughs) Did I say doses? Yes. Okay.